Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. Um, and we are on location, aren't we, Jim? Yeah, we are. We are. It's, it's, it's pretty special, aren't we? We're in Guy Gibson's office at I know, RAF I, Well, I was going to do, do, can you guess where we are, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> I've just completely blown You've it. You've completely, absolutely trodden on it. Because um, I was going to read out... Um, all right, I want to start again. Let's do no, it no, 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 no. This is fine. An outgoing, <laughs> it's an outgoing cipher message from Headquarters Bomber Command, James. Go on, then. To, um, from Air Ministry Whitehall. Degree of priority, most immediate. Mm. Text of the message, most secret. Operation chastise, immediate attack of targets X, Y, Z approved. Execute at first suitable opportunity. There we go. And when was that first suitable opportunity? Well, y- you're you're the expert, James. When was that? Well, Sunday, the sixteenth of May, nineteen forty-three. Was that the first? Was that the, actually the first clear day they had? Or yeah, I think it was. I think it was authorized the day before, if I remember rightly, or, or the Friday or something. And I think they, you know, they then needed to sort of finally do get everything ready. What, what date's that? Fifteenth. Yeah. Okay. So it's a Saturday. So that's four, interesting, isn't four. it? So they so they 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 just got on with it. They didn't. Um, yeah. And the weather was right, and the moonlight was right, and yeah. Uh, I mean, interesting though. It's really interesting because if you you can look at the original weather reports, and so what happens is is you go. They all went for a briefing in the early part of the afternoon. Um, navigators, um, um, skippers of, of the yeah. various Lancasters, and that's where they were told what the target was going to be, and given the weather briefing from right. from the Met officer. And um, they were told there was going to be no wind whatsoever. There's right. going to be zero wind. So which that's that's very good because they're having to fly very very low level, which yeah. means you're using dead reckoning. Really, you yeah. know, your your new navigation aids don't really work at that height. We're no. talking about hundred feet. So the whole idea was you go hundred feet, so you're under the radar. Yep. You know, when people talk about, oh, I'm going under the radar, they literally were going under the radar. Uh, and, and, and that's because of the curvature of the Earth. Um, so what, like a couple of hundred miles an hour? So, or, they, or they're going flat yeah, out? Yeah, 220 miles an hour, something right. like that. So, um, and that's very, very difficult. Uh, um, but obviously, it's easier when you're flying over flat land. And a lot of it is, um, you know, so you're going out from Lincolnshire, which is pretty flat. And then you're going over the North Sea, which obviously is flat, that's but a bit pretty wobbly. Flat. Yeah. Um, and then you go over the, over the Netherlands, which is pretty flat. Uh, and it only starts to get really hilly once you start actually to do get to the kind of dams area, which yeah. is kind of sort of just west, uh, east rather of the, of the Ruhr, industrial heartland in Western Germany, where it gets quite hilly and it's quite problematic. But for the most part, it's okay. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, on the, on the flight, there are some problems caused by wind, which has not been predicted. Uh, and I've mentioned this, this, this friend of mine before, who's a meteorologist, who's very interesting about D-Day weather. And saying there was kind of sort of you know they got lucky and basically yeah. they should have gone on the fifth, yeah. uh, um, 
But but Simon Keeling, um, I first got to know him when I was looking into the dams raid, and we were looking at the original weather charts they would have used to predict the weather on the night of the 16th, 17th of May. And he said, they've got it wrong. He said, I can tell you there's a wind there. And and this is why there was a been wind, and it would have been a northerly wind, and it would come down. It wouldn't have been very significant, but it would definitely have knocked them off course. Right. What happens to dear old Les Munro, the New Zealander? He gets hit by flak. Um as he's crossing the, because the he's Dutch in the coast. Wrong, he's in the wrong because place. Because he's in the wrong place, because, so because he hasn't dodged it. So he's gone over one of the sort of flat clusters yeah. in the Dutch coast. Not his fault at all. Yeah. Nothing to do with him. And, and probably it knocks out his, ra- his radio. And without intercom, you can't communicate. And for something like this, you extra need to communicate yeah. with your crew. Yeah. And, you know, if you're ever in a Lancaster and you've got... I mean, I remember being in a Lancaster with two engines on at quarter revs. And it was just unbelievable. It was yeah. so noisy. Yeah. Whole thing shaking and all the rest of it. So we've... Four engines, even at sort of cruising, you know, it's it's you, you unless you've got your intercom, you just cannot function. So Les Monroe has no choice but to, to turn around and come back. Right, but that's and others get shot down. Now, of course, what we've done here is we've bowled straight into the subject of the dams raid, assuming everyone knows <laughs> yeah. quite a lot about it. Um, and as we mentioned the other week on the on the podcast, the the, the film, of course, the Dam Busters, is filmed in black and white to make it. Uh, appropriate to the Second World War, but because um, the Second World War happened in black and white. But but what is what is the point of the dams raid? If it, after all, um, Harris Bomber Command have been through, or Bomber Command have been through this this terrible business of realizing that they can't hit um, a barn door at twenty paces. I know, uh, and the Butt Report tells you that, which comes out in the summer of nineteen forty-one, it tells you that you're not getting within ten miles of your yeah. targets. Um, that navigation is basically impossible, and this leads to a sort of a, a sort of confluence of things that, that you know that leads to the euphemistic idea of area bombing and dehousing civilians, which of course um, is easily my favourite area yeah. bombing um, euphemism. Oh, we're just we're just making sure they aren't in their houses anymore. Yeah. Um, but this doesn't fit any of that. This raid is the is the diametric opposite of that, isn't it? You, you, after all, flying at super low level that isn't that isn't how Bomber Command operates. Flying in moonlight um, is the thing Bomber Command, of course, is pretty ambivalent about because yes, you can see, but they can see you and, and and so on. So what on earth is this raid? Why on earth is this happening? Because it doesn't fit the picture at all. And and the movie makes a, a, a meal of Harris going, I don't believe in panacea targets. And the, the idea that, which is after all in opposition to the American idea that you, you bomb ball bearing factories, you bomb oil refineries. And what you aren't doing is bombing civilians. What is this raid? Why is it happening? Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting because because the strategic air campaign against Germany is is just not a flat line and it's not even a smooth graph. It's it's one that sort of wobbles about all over the yeah. place. And, and I think what you've got with the dams raid is it's kind of that sort of middle period. You know, it's May 1943. So the war's been going on for quite a long time. It's still got quite a long time to run. And, and you've got these two conflicting forces. You've got this idea that the only way you can smash targets is by, by sending over vast numbers of really heavy bombers and just pulverizing everything in sight. Because we've had 1,000 bomber raids by now, haven't we? Uh, 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 yes, at uh, the, 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 the very end of Lube May 1942. So, yeah. so Harris takes over Bomber Command in February 1942. Um, and that is about the same time that the Lancasters are coming in. Yeah. And he hasn't got enough. He's got kind of, you know, just a hundred or so to start off of and he tries the Augsburg raid in 19 April 1942 which is a low-level raid where they um they go and hit Augsburg which is where the man diesel plant is where they're yeah. producing diesel engines for u-boats uh, and it's a disaster you know of the 12 12 
um, Lancaster that go over, five come back. Yeah. So there's like, okay, so going in low means you can go, you can go accurate. Yeah. But, but it it's incredibly, but it's incredibly dangerous, and it's not worth it yeah. because the cost is too high. So therefore, you have to go in over kind of sort of you know eighteen thousand feet to twenty five thousand feet, and you just have to just splat everything. Yeah. Uh, and and okay, so you, ideally you want to hit those, you want to hit the Krupp factory in you know in Essen. But if you, you can't, just you, just maybe knock out you, the whole city. Well, you might knock out the whole city. Maybe you kill the guy that works in the Krupp factory, right. or at least and you make everything difficult. You make everything difficult. Well, you give him you give him a, a sleepless night. And yeah. uh, and and so on. And, yeah, and, and enough and, of them will hit the hit the, the enough of them will anyway. hit the factory and disrupt, disrupt and and all that sort of stuff. Create friction, basically. But, but so what you've got at this moment is you've got this tipping point in May 1943 where new navigational aids are coming in. H2S, yep. Obo. You know, Obo is the first sort of an H2S, are really the kind of first ground mapping radar. So yep. they're big, big, big strides ahead. Up until that, you've just had G, which is coming, which is a kind of sort of homing device, yeah. which is coming in the kind of year before. But at the time of the Butt Report, which comes out in the summer of 1941, none of those aides are there. You've yeah. just got dead reckoning. You've just got yeah. kind of, you know, sort of scratchy papers and protractors and compasses yeah. and things and a pencil. And it's not really kind of enough to do the job. Um, and so by May 1943, it is really starting to go up a step. But yeah. but that, that next step hasn't really been tested. So... The kind of the, the, the theory, uh, uh, the, the, and, and, and the sort of moment where that actually begins to coagulate is is Hamburg, after all, where where right where those things do do all. But that's but that's after this. Yeah, so that's the end of July, beginning of August, nineteen forty three. Yeah. So that's that's after this, and and the all out strategic air combat. So, so basically, Harris takes over in February nineteen forty two, and he says it's going to take me at least a year to get my force ready. So yeah. we'll carry on bombing, but 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 when we really go all out, is going to be the early part of nineteen forty three because that is by the time that new navigation techniques will come in, and that's the time where I'll have more Lancasters yeah. and, and and I'll have a lot more aircraft um, and airfields. And one of the problems that holds him back, actually, is the arrival of the Americans in the 8th Air Force in the summer of 1942, because suddenly they've got heavies and they need concrete runways, and all those runways that are going to be made for Bomber Command have now got to be made for the 8th Air Force as well. Yeah. So that sets that back. And so it just it just is a, is a big old process. But although... Harris is kind of accepting that there are new navigational aids. He still thinks there is a limit to what can be achieved in 1943 and yeah. probably even in 1944, yeah. which is why he still goes for this sort of splattering and, effect. And, and, and also, um, he's... I mean, Harris, Harris is portrayed in all sorts of, in all sorts of ways and is a, is a controversial figure. But one of the things he's very, very um, keen on is making sure his crew's morale yep. holds up. So what he's not going to do is give them things where he give them jobs to do where morale might um, uh, right. collapse, right? Yep. Which is why he's holding back from giving the bomber command tasks it can't complete, basically, isn't yep. he? Uh, and, and that's a component in his command of bomber command as much as, as, much as anything else, isn't it? Yes. He's really trying to make sure that they don't run before they, before they can walk, as, yes. as it were. Uh, and this so it gets left out, doesn't it? Sometimes of of, of his depiction. And it, it, I mean, we're driving up here, um, uh, James and I, of course, we put the world to rights and talked about talked about some of this. And I, I, I compared. I, I think there's a comparison in a way with Montgomery getting hold of Eighth Army and going right. There's things we can I can do with this army, and there's things I just cannot do. I've you know, and he sacks the people he thinks are useless, and then when Alamein comes. He doesn't try and do anything he thinks Eighth Army can't do. 
because he doesn't want to damage its morale. And also, he's, it's their confidence in him and his confidence in them. He's, he's protecting that. And Harris is doing that as, as, just as much as someone like Montgomery, isn't he? he? He wants them to have confidence in him and he wants to have confidence in his guys and he wants to make sure their morale holds up as much yeah. as anything else, right? Yes. But also, the other thing is also he truly believes that bombing can save the slaughter of the First World War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he truly believes that British and Allied lives will be saved by protracting huge amounts of bombing. Yeah. And, you know, and, and actually looking at it, you know, from the Second World War, from the strategic air campaign from 1939 to 1945, that is unarguable. It right. does. It does, because cause Britain and America and Canada and all those involved in the war in the West, their casualty lists are considerably less yeah. than all the other major combatants. And that is in a large part due to the kind of effects of aerial bombing and yeah. the amount of effort that is put into that. And obviously, you know, it's, it's you know, 55,000 people killed in Bomber Command during the Second World War is a huge, huge number. But that's only kind of four divisions or something. Yeah. You know, so it, it, is, it is a big saving. There's no, there's no yeah. question about it. Um, but I think what's really interesting is, is that what, what, what Harris accepts is that massed heavy bombing is the way forward. The holy grail of bombing is one plane, one bomb. Yeah, yeah. which is what we get. Which is what you get in, in August, in August 1945. That is the holy grail. And that's why we've never had bombing fleets ever, you know, of, of that scale ever again. Not, yeah. not on the scale of the Second World War. But what Barnes-Wallace, who is the, the deputy chief um, designer at Vickers Aviation down at, um, down at Brooklands in Weybridge, you know, what, what he's suggesting and has been thinking about ever since the end of the First World War and as the this new war is sort of um, sort of uh, brewing on the horizon is what if we can do this one bomber one yeah one bomb you know or or a handful of bombers and a handful of very very big bombs wouldn't that just save everybody a whole load of hassle and he's and what you get is that kind of the dams raid is that meeting of that extreme with Harris's extreme, yeah. so it's 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 the panacea, the holy grail, the the kind of small one bomb, one plane, versus that ain't going to work. It's got to be mass. And Barnes Wallace, I mean, the, one of the things the film tries to tell us is that Barnes Barnes Wallace is banging on desks saying, "No, just listen to me. If only they bloody listen to me. If only it wasn't was a brick wall of fact, bureaucracy." As you say, he is he's the, the you know he's very high up at Vickers. Who Very are basically the military-industrial complex, to use a, a '60s term. That you know, if if the UK is a military-industrial complex, a warfare state, yeah. Vickers is Vickers right is in the very heart of it. Right at the very heart of it, a massive manufacturer. They're the people building everything. They own. I mean, they own Supermarine. For you know, if you if you want yes. an example of how well their war's going for them in terms of. Um, orders from the government, for instance, and also making vast numbers of tanks. Yeah, yeah, exactly, you know, exactly. Enfield is part of Vickers. You know, it's, yeah, it's all, yeah. it's all, and so on. So it's not like it's not like Barnes Wallace is is some bloke living in a vicarage saying, "If only these chaps had listened to me." He's actually he's actually incredibly important, and and that's why he's taken seriously. Well, it's 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 yes and no. So the thing thing about <laughs> about Barnes Wallace is is that he is. It's not that he's not taken seriously. It's just that, you know, he comes up with this idea of the Victory Bomber, which is a kind of six-engine, massive bomber yeah. that can fly at kind of 300 miles an hour. Pressurised cockpit. Pressurised cockpit, yeah. can fly at 40,000 feet, and it drops it drops what he calls an earthquake bomb. 
Yeah. Uh, which is actually what the Grand Slam, the 10-ton yeah, bomb, yeah. effectively is. Now, the idea about this is you drop this bomb, it goes under the ground, it creates an earthquake, everything collapses, and, and you don't need to fight a war because you've destroyed their industry and their capability of, yeah. of, of, of fighting a war. And so, you know, and actually that is the principles, in a way, of, of the atomic bomb. I mean, yeah. that, that is what you're trying to do. But he's coming at it from a slightly, you know, he hasn't thought about kind of atomic and fusion it, and all that kind of stuff. And it's also, it's also in, the, in the sort of... Um, it's a sort of antecedent to the to the uh, idea of effects based operations, shock and awe, which is the thing right. that, that we that we saw in the last Gulf War, wasn't it? Yeah. Where, where you do something so spectacular, the other side go, oh, Phew, game, "I'm out of this game's race. Up. I'm, I'm out. We can't have that happen again." And 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 I suppose I suppose that you know the dams raid kind of fits that too, doesn't it? Uh, uh, well, so so the interesting so anyway, thing about so, so, yeah, so to answer my question. What is the dams raid, James? So, so, well, well, so, <laughs> so, so, well, I'm, I'm going to have to. I can tell you that, but I'm going to recap a little bit because yeah. the, the point about, about the Barnes Wallace story is, is, is the movie depiction is absolutely incorrect. So the Victory Bomber doesn't come off, yeah, because it's suddenly it's 1940 and there isn't the capacity to the Victory Bomber because we need to build what we've got. You know, this is the five types of aircraft that Beaverbrook, who is the yeah. head of the Ministry of Aircraft Production in 1940. Yeah. We've just got to make what we've got already and lots of them and, and everything the, else is sort of cancelled. Sterling which is what and, the, and the Sterling and the Halifax have already, they've been laid down, they've been they've been commissioned, haven't they? Yes, and the, yeah. and the Lancaster sort of put on hold and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, so you know, and actually the the, uh, the the heavy bomber that can fly at 300 miles an hour that, that RJ Mitchell has been designing, that goes off the peg yeah. as well, yeah. you know, this sort of time. Well, partly because he's died, but, but partly because... They're focusing on these five yeah. aircraft instead. So he just doesn't quite get enough traction for this. Everyone's like, well, this is really, really interesting. I really like this, but practically I just can't see how we can develop this victory yeah. bomber. And, and I can't see how this bomb's going to work. So it sort of falls by the wayside. But he's still thinking about all this stuff and thinking about things that he could do. And then he gets the idea of this sort of bouncing bomb so that he becomes obsessed with dams. And, and he knows that the Ruhr is, is, is completely supplied by this. You know, you need water. You need water for... Um, the population in the cities, but you also need water for industrial processes as well. Yeah. So if you can destroy the water supply, then your factories won't work in the Ruhr. And that's a good thing, you know. So it's effectively yeah. the same principle as the earthquake bomb from the Victory Bomber, but but delivered, the effect is delivered in a different way. And it's delivered by this concept of the bouncing bomb. But originally, the bouncing bomb is designed as an anti-shipping. It's an anti-shipping weapon. Isn't so it? the idea is, is that you've got the turpits, you've got these warships from the Kriegsmarine holed up in in Norway in these fjords, these narrow fjords. But protecting them is a huge, great curtain, this vertical net which is strung across the fjord yeah. and which hangs down, which prevents a, a submarine going in and firing a torpedo yeah. at it. Yeah. That's the principle behind it. So how do you get round the net? And how do you get an aircraft? You can't get an aircraft close enough because it's too vulnerable because they've got you know anti-aircraft yeah. defences and stuff on these ships and roundabout. So you need to get further away. So what you do is you drop a bomb which can then bounce over the top of the net. Yeah. So it's originally developed That's what for it's that. for. And, and it, he gets the backing of the... It's, it's, it's Blackett, who, right. who is uh, the development of the um, the Blackett number 14 bomb site that yeah. was developed for the RAF because the Americans won't share the, um, Norden. the, the Norden. And uh, he's the same guy. And he goes, God, I like this idea. And he's the one who eventually funds the, the money to get this project up up and right. running. But suddenly, he Barnes-Wallace realises, well, hang on a minute. We've still got these same anti-torpedo nets in, in the front of these huge great dams, the Myrna and the Zorpa, but also the um, the Ada Dam. The Ada Dam doesn't feel the Ruhr, it feels Castle. But yeah. but but it's these these are monster yeah. edifices. These are these are engineering projects which are the proud the, the pride of Germany. You know, every school child knows who 
designed these dams and knows about these dams. It's, it's, it's sort of... Like a German Brunel. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what it's like. And they're very proud of it. And it's the conquest of nature and all this kind of stuff. Mm. So if you can get over these torpedo nets at these dams, you could maybe destroy these dams. And, what you, and, and the problem, the sticking point is, how do you get enough charge to the face of the dam yeah. To explode it, and it is it is an it is an accident. While they're doing it, it's the Rhodes Research Lab, the Road Research Lab, where they're where um, which is uh, um, out near where Heathrow is now, on the west of London. They have this laboratory which is for testing road surfaces and processes of roads, yeah. and they've got these mini dams there, and they're doing works, and they've got these tanks at Teddington as well. They can practice and things. And, and what he realizes is that they're trying to destroy these model dams that they don't need anymore. And what they do is they put a charge under the water. And right. it completely destroys this little model dam. And the thing about these gravity dams is they are always proportionally the same, however big or small yeah. you go. Yeah. So something that is just a model, if you upscale it to the size of the Myrna dam, it's still the same. Right. So whatever destroys the dam, the model dam, times it by the same amount to yeah. get to the, the yeah. real scale of the Myrna dam, you've got the right amount of charge. And he realizes that that can be carried by a Lancaster bomber because it only needs about four tonnes. Right. So what he develops is this depth charge that hits the side of the dam. So it skips across the water, over the net, hits the side of the dam, then sinks 20 foot, and then explodes. And the explosion, combined with the pressure by the water, the depth of the water above it, is what will do the damage, yeah. as long as you hit it dead centre and from a certain particular distance see, and a particular height. You see, I mean, why not just drop your earthquake bomb on it? Um, is the well because that's what it's his too previous, you, because, because his previous thinking was it's just too difficult to do that accurately. It's too difficult to do that accurately. The beauty about about the if you're dropping from above, you've got to hit it directly on the top. Yeah, yeah. and a, and a, obviously a, a, a dam, even a just, one of the scale of, of the Myrna Dam or the Zorpa or the or the Ada, is absolutely titchy from yeah. kind of even 2,000 feet, let alone yeah. kind of 15 yeah. or whatever. And you can't get in, you know, and even from 120 feet, that's a really, really hard one. But the great thing about doing a bouncing bomb is you're skipping towards it. So you've got this massive yeah, great yeah, yeah. target. And as long you. as you get it kind of roughly in the middle yeah. and it then sinks against the wall and explodes. So yeah. basically what you're looking, it's actually not a bomb. It's a, um, it's a depth it's, charge. It's a mine, isn't it? It's a mine. a mine. Yeah, yeah. The problem with this for Harris is that he hit, you know, he's been hearing what he calls these panacea mongers, these guys coming up with these sort of loopy, wacko ideas, one after the other. And the problem for someone, for Bomber Command to be able to do this is like, that's great, but we operate at 18,000 feet. So how are we going to get somewhere? You know, what, what well, height do you back, need to be for the bouncing bomb? Well, we come back to that thing of giving crews things that are impossible and then they all get killed and you're morale. Your morale goes down the toilet. So, so that's in your calculation too, isn't it? Yes, and and so to do this, deliver this, you're talking about you know a whole an entire squadron of Lancasters, which looks like a total suicide mission, delivering um, a wacko plan to kind of bounce a bomb across the surface and jump over a torpedo net. There seemed, you know, okay, perhaps maybe in the kind of wildest dreams this might come off, but it seems like a very very wild dream. Yeah, and it seems the kind of benefit to risk ratio doesn't seem good yeah. enough yeah where barnes wallace is really interesting is that he is very very well connected and he's a ferocious networker and he absolutely doesn't take no as an answer and he recruits various people to his cause and one of them is fred winterbottom who is this spook who is working for a secret intelligence service in in the um air ministry um intelligence and he has one of the best address books in london and he knows absolutely everybody and barnes wallace gets him on side and when Barnes Wallace presents the whole kind of dam busting plan, it gets rebuffed. 
And what Fred Winterbottom does is he sends this very, very, very clever letter to one of the deputy um, chiefs of the air staff, implying that there is this amazing weapon, that the Navy is stealing a march on the RAF. It would be a terrible shame not to kind of, um, that if Portal never knew about this and a yeah. golden opportunity to do something really spectacular and get one over the Navy had gone, gone missing. That, of course, then weaves its way to Portal, which is exactly what he's hoping to do. And Portal is the, is yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the chief of the air staff. And Portal goes, hmm, on balance, I like this. I think this is, this is worth it. Just at the very moment where, where Wallace has been completely rebuffed, so much so that the head of Vickers has said, do you know what, can you just... Bloody back off and drop it. Well, and then it's greenlit on the 25th of February 1943. Join us after the break to find out what happens next. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk from RAF Scampton. 16th May 1943, 617 Squadron. Call sign Cooler. Off 65 SNCO officers, so 65 officers, senior NCOs, 110. Other ranks, 305. No, NF, non-flight, is that non-flying personnel? Yep. Right, 15. A-flight. So this blackboard has who the pilots are, what their code code signs are. Yep. Um, uh, whether they're in service. Yes. The load which is, of course, the... One-time store, and the store, is, of course, is the upkeep. It's the upkeep, line. Which is a code name for the bouncing bomb. Yep. Originally so, designed as a sphere and then becomes cylindrical. Yeah, it turns into a barrel. It's a barrel, basically. Yeah. It? it looks like a, an enormous barrel of beer. It looks like the kind of thing, if you went to um, a village fete, someone would have cut a quarter out of and used it as a barbecue. <laughs> yes. Isn't it? So Gibson, Wing Commander Gibson... Then you've uh, Young as who's one of the flight. Young is so Dingy Young is one yeah. of the flight commanders. He's an interesting guy. He's just married a Californian. He's um, he's a very clever chap. He's a he's um, Dingy Oxbridge. Young because, because he's been rescued from the sea a couple of times. <laughs> yes, yeah. he's already done a tour. Of, he's done his fifty yeah. missions uh, in the Middle East actually. So he hasn't flown Lancasters before until he's just joined Fifty Seven so like, Squadron. Was, what was he doing his sorties he, in the Middle East then? So he was in he was in Wellingtons. Right. And then he comes back over and he, he commands Sea Flight in 57 Squadron. The whole of Sea Flight come over right. into, into 617 Squadron when it's formed in, in the second half of March 1943. Um, yeah, Maltby, Astell, David Shannon. And actually, this is this picture here, I think, is that, that's David Shannon. So we're looking at. So I should just say, we're in, we're, Gibson's office is what? About four metres by four metres yep. square. It's like a cube, isn't it? Yeah. Green doors. Um, reassuring damp, it, reassuring um, institutional damp on the ceiling. Yep, all um, that. Uh, Metal frame windows because they're cheap and easy and they don't rot. That's right. Um, uh, a, a radiator, which I think isn't contemporary. Possibly not. Um, uh, hat uh, stand, yeah, desk, hat stand, all that sort of stuff. Bakelite phone, Duriger pipe. A, with a winding handle. It's one of those. Yeah. I say, could you, could you possibly get me the, uh, the wardroom, please? <laughs> It's all that sort of stuff. Anyway, your, your guy Gibson, you're standing in Gibson. <laughs> I'm I'm Dingy Young. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, so Young Young is a very very competent, brilliant fellow. I mean, the interesting thing about the dancers, then you, then you got the second board. With yeah. There's, so there's B flight with the, with the other with the other the other um, uh, planes on and a spare aircraft. That's right. T uh, S in store. Now, um, how do they pick? Because you've talked about Young, he's done his tours, he's done his time. How do they choose the crews for 617? And is it, you know, because we, we do touch, we've touched on the problem with elite um, uh, forces before, with the army, which is that um, they're pretty unpopular in regular 
outfits because all your good people, all your skilled people, all your experienced people, all your like mo- super motivated people will all bugger off and join an elite outfit. Um, what? Where do they get these people from? And what's the attitude to this squadron being formed? Yeah, so it's interesting. So, so Guy Gibson's just finished at the beginning of March. He finishes um, his stint as commanding officer of 106 Squadron. Yeah. Um, um, and he's supposed to be given some leave, but he gets called in by Ralph Cochran, who is the commander of Five Group at Grantham. And um, Air Vice Marshal um, Cochran calls him up and says, look, I know, you've, I know you're supposed to be on leave. I know this, but you know, how do you fancy one more trip? And Gibson sits for him and just thinks, you know, flack, um, yeah. you know, suicide, um, you know, murderous flack and, yeah. and, and night fighters. And, yeah. and so he sort of gulps and goes, um, well, you know, what do you mean? He says, well, I can't really tell you anything about it, but, but we've got an idea. We, there's a very special mission. We kind of really need you to do it. But I'll tell you more in a little bit. So he goes off for a couple of days, um, comes back. Um, I think he's on the something like the... 19th of March, I think it is, 1943, goes back to see Crockham and sort of goes, okay, so so what is it? And again, he says, I can't tell you anything about it, but it's but it's very dangerous. It's super special. Lots of low-level flying. Lots of low-level flying. Um, it's going to be completely different to anything we do, but, you know, we really need you to do this. And Gibson doesn't really feel he can say no. So he sort of goes, okay. He says, well, where am I going? And he says, you know, you're going to have to form a squadron. You're going to have to train them up, and then we're going to have to do the mission. I can't even tell you when the mission's going to be, but all this will come... Yeah, apparent as, as time goes on. So, you know, I think it's okay. Well, we'll try and get the best people we possibly can, you know, pre- preferably people that have done at least one tour, if not two. And that just proves impossible. Yeah, of course. Now, of course, the first thing he does is he goes to, he goes to um, uh, 106 Squadron and gets his mates. Yeah. You know, so he gets John Hopgood, for example, who's there in B-Flight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, he gets various others, people that he knows, um, Maudsley and uh, and David Shannon and uh, Mickey Martin. He knows about Mickey Martin is is a, is known as an expert low level flyer, even though you don't really need to do it. Yeah, um, he's an Australian, um, and actually, it's a, it is a very Duke squadron yeah, 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 that gets yeah. put 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 forward. Actually, uh, and, and there are some who've just got barely any flights at all. I mean, you know, there's um, uh, I think Townsend Knight. Um, Otley and Rice, I, I think they're all under ten, right? Missions, right? So what happens is, I mean, they, I mean, well, they're picked because they're good chaps. No, because they, they they need these crews, and there's just right. not enough people who want to okay. do it. And I mean, how the, you know, how do you find these people? Yeah, you know, they're in the middle of a squad; they're already in a squadron. You know, yeah, the, yeah, and yeah. the squadron commanders don't want to let their yeah. their flight commanders go, or you know. And if you've done your fifty missions, you kind of you've done your fifty missions. Yeah. So why would you want to do any more? Yeah, and. So actually, squadron, you know, notices go up. So, you know, 97 squadron, you know, Les Munro, who's a New Zealander, he sees a notice on the notice board. Just says, well, that sounds, you know, sounds quite interesting. Sounds a bit of fun. You know, two months of training, yeah. low level, yeah. you know, do something a bit different. Okay, yeah. I'm up for it. Who's in? And his crew go, yeah, all right, boss, you know, whatever. Uh, and it's the same with Joe McCarthy. You know, so, so that's how they kind of get the crew and the crews come together really you know it's not that quick I mean Gibson turns up here at Scampton on the 21st of March and and you know they're still looking for people at the beginning of April you see because I was going I mean the thing I was going to say is is from what we're talking basically eight weeks aren't we from 10 weeks it's 10 right, weeks right okay uh, from, from you know middle of March to, to middle of to middle of May yeah 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 well it's yeah. 10 no it's, it's 10 weeks since basically it gets the full green well, that's, which is yeah. the end of, so, end so of February so it's no time it's no time yeah it, 
I mean, that to me seems like no time at all. It is no time at all. It really isn't. And you have to remember that these guys are used to flying at kind of 18,000 feet above in a bomber in a stream. bomber stream, yeah. Which yeah. Is basically means that you're, you're flying basically willy-nilly. Yeah. Whereas suddenly what they're going to be asked to do is fly at kind of 100 foot and actually it ends up being, at the time, point of release is going to be only 60 foot, which is basically like the same height as a you know, street lamp or something. Yeah. Um, it's not very high at all. It's less than a cricket pitch, yeah. 60 foot. You know, it's nothing. Well, and with great at big, night, and with great big lamps on on the airplanes to say, at night over here, <laughs> and and with a rotating yeah, yeah, yeah. four ton yeah. c- cylinder that yeah. is Explosive. whirling round and has got yeah. that kind of gyro effect of yeah. wanting to go in one particular direction because it's that's because it's heavy and it's spinning in that yeah. particular way. Yeah. Um, so you're asking him to do an awful lot, uh, and Gibson particularly has a real problem because he doesn't. He's got a completely new crew because he's left 106, yeah, yeah. so everyone's gone to the four winds. Most of his crew, you know, his old crew don't want to come back, so he's got to form this new crew that he doesn't know. So that has to gel. That kind of that gelling of a crew, you know, where you have that complete mutual trust is absolutely essential. At the same time, he's still got to keep going down south to see Barnes Wallace. He's got to learn what the process is. He's still at that this part, first part of this training. Can't tell any of the other crews what it is yeah. they're doing, so they just get on with practicing low level stuff. Um, you, you know, he's constantly having to ferry back and forward and going, you know, it's not like us sort of driving up from London this morning and, and you know, in three hours we're here. It's a much bigger process going yeah. down to Reculver in Kent, for example, yeah, yeah. or Manston or wherever um, than it was then. So he misses out on a lot of training because he's just not here. And also he's got the job of running the running the the. The squadron and creating a squadron is not it's not just a sort of right okay let's get the crews in and then let's go you've got to create an entire squadron you know and there's something like i think it's 48 people on the ground to every seven in a plane so you're pretty reliant on your adjutant then aren't you yes but you've got to oversee all this you've got to sign all the paperwork you've got to sign it all off and say yes and no and all that sort of stuff so you've got people underneath you but you still organize it sound brilliant like a brilliant way of organizing uh things that that maybe what you need is a Squadron commander who isn't flying. Yeah, but there is a station commander here. But, but, but you know what? But, I, but, but you know what I mean. Like, or, or, or like a sort of super adjutant who does who, who who Gibson would see every morning and go anything anything really important you need to tell me. I've I've got to. I've got to go recover. Go, 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 yeah, 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 I think it was a bit like that. But but there's still an awful lot on his shoulders. That's yeah, my point. Yeah, there's yeah. an awful lot he's got to think about. You know, he recruits Chiefy Powell, who's a kind of sort of number one kind of ground crew guy. Yeah. To help get get all that set up, but they have to find everything. They have to find bedding and stools and yeah, chairs yeah. and and you know crew rooms and all the kit. Now, in the meantime, the the bomb the bomb the, the upkeep mine isn't really complete, is it? Until the in, ready until the week of the raid. It, not, it, it, not at all. And North Lancaster. Well, just yeah, that's what I was going to get to. So the, the, we talk about the bomb a lot, but the aircraft have to be modified too, don't they? Because yeah. because. They're obviously, the superficial things like the bomb bay doors have to come off, but turrets have to come off. It needs to be a lot lighter, doesn't it? Um, uh, uh, and all this sort of stuff. When a when a Avro, how does that process work? Is it something well, done just, by the RAF or is it, or is it, it Avro? Yeah, no. It's, I mean, it's really really interesting because the green light is at the end of February 1943, yeah. and at the time of green light, there is no upkeep and there is no aircraft capable of carrying it yeah you know so as you say you've got 10 weeks in which or, or roughly and it has to be between mid-june between mid-may and the beginning of june because that's when the water level is at the right that's level, the right level in because the after that it gets too low yep so that all important pressure won't work yep and before that it's too, too it's also it's too full so you've you know it's it's 
there is this window. And then you've got issue of moons. You need to go where there's kind of sort of almost a full moon. Yeah. A full moon or almost full moon. So the window really is kind of those two weeks from the middle of May to the kind of end of May. Yeah. And that really doesn't give you very much time. Fortunately... And then um, you fingers crossed that the weather's going to be all right that night, that, 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 during that stage too. But, you know... So absolutely. They, you were talking earlier on about the wind. That, that they get Luckily, they get a forecast that means they can go. Because if, if it had been bad weather for the rest of the month, the window would have Forget passed it. altogether. The whole thing would Completely. have been off. Yeah. So you've got, you've got the Vickers... Assistant Chief Designer designing yeah. the bomb. But the only aircraft that can carry this is a Lancaster, which is made by Avro, which has nothing to do with Vickers whatsoever. Yeah. So that, although, although we're all in it together, that's you're still competing firms having to kind of collaborate. Yeah. And that's potentially fraught. Yeah. You know, people get to be Chief Designer um, because they've got quite big egos yeah. and because they're ambitious and because they're control freaks and all those sort of things. But you're asking two big, big guys, Barnes Wallace and Roy Chadwick of Avro, yeah. to work together and collaborate. Fortunately, they do. They get on really, really well. Roy Chadwick is a really lovely bloke, so is Barnes Wallace. It's all fine, and they do it. But but they only do it by kind of slashing red tape, all the normal procurement processes that you would need to get things from A to B and to get what the necessary yeah. materials you need in place in the right time to develop both the bomb and the Lancaster, special Lancaster. That all happens, and that's because it's kind of sanctioned at the highest, highest but, level. But given you don't know what the bomb is at the start of this process, how do you know what to do to the Lancaster? I mean, it's it, it, yeah. it, it's all happening... Well, you know it's going to rotate. You know it's going to be four, four tonnes, and you know it's going to have to hang in calipers underneath yeah. it. So you can sort of get on with it. I mean, the interesting thing is about the sphere is it just keeps breaking up. Yeah. And it's not until they get lower and lower and lower. Originally, the idea is that you're at 220 miles an hour, you're 120 feet, and you drop it from there. But it just keeps smashing. Yeah. So it's only one... And, and then... The, the actual depth charge, which is inside the casing, that once it smashes, it then rolls on, and they go, "Oh, hang on a minute, yeah. maybe this will work." So we've got this rotating kind of sort of you know baked bean can yeah. effectively, but sort of giant or sort of oil drum is what it yeah. looks like, and, and rotating it, and, and this could work. And so they do further trials of this without the casing. They go, "Hang on, this is the way forward." But already the you know, but actually that also makes it easy for the calipers to do it because yeah. it's because it's a, it's shallower, which means it can sit in the cradle of yeah. these two calipers kind of much more easily when in the type four six four Lancaster, which is what it what it becomes. But I mean, you know, they're not delivered until I can't remember it's like beginning of May or something. Yeah, uh, and it, you know. No one has. Uh, I think only sort of two people of three people or something have actually dropped a live yeah. upkeep Up before the raid. Yeah. And that's test pilots, isn't it? Yeah. So, so I mean, that's quite interesting in itself, isn't it? That, that yeah, it's Mutt Summers again. But it, but it's Mutt Summers. But there you go. It's, I mean, it's interesting that they don't give it to Gibson to try at least once before a raid. Yeah. That he doesn't get he doesn't get that opportunity, does he? I don't think so. No, I think well, a couple of them do. I can't remember which ones it is. Maybe Young and Maudsley or something right. like that. But have I mean, they but at I mean, least have a go. But, but 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 yeah. But I mean, you know, Les Monroe, you know, he didn't. I mean, yeah. I remember talking to him about this. He just said, you know, we, we, we practice bombing, we practice bombing, and we practice bombing, and probably accurate bombing, we practice low-level flying. It's a great story by Johnny Johnson, who was in Joe McCarthy's crew, um, and he was the, uh, the bomb aimer in that. And, you know, I remember him, I remember sitting in this very room with Johnny, telling me this story. And he had, when I came back here with Johnny in whenever it was, 2012, something like that, he hadn't been in this room since the war. Oh my God. And he came in with Joe McCarthy, and he was due to get married. And his leave was cancelled because of 617 yeah. Squadron. Yeah. And Joe McCarthy came in with the entire crew and said, and there was Gibson sitting where you're sitting. And he said, my bomb even needs to have some leave to go out to go and get married. And if he doesn't get that leave, he's not where we are out of here. Really? The choice is yours. 
And wow. Gibson goes, okay, go and have it. 48 hours, go and get married and come back again. So he does. Incredible. So Johnny Johnson got married right at the beginning of the whole process. Amazing. But 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 Johnny was telling me this story. He, he said, you know, that, that Joe liked to, because it was quite hard to tell under 100 foot, the altimeter didn't really work very effectively. No. So you had to sort of guess it. So he would kind of err on the side of caution, probably be more like 80 foot. And they were doing all these sort of bombing runs over the over the wash, you know, in, in, yeah. in Fenland. He said they were flying back at one point, and suddenly a Lancaster came underneath them. <gasps> now, a Lancaster's a big old beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said to Johnny, well, who was that? And he said, well, it was, it was Les Monroe, but, but I'm pretty sure it was, but he always denied it. After that, I then went to, um, <laughs> I went to New Zealand. To, 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 I flew all the way out to New Zealand just to talk to Les Monroe. I spent two days with Les Monroe. Uh, and he was, at the time, he must have been about 90 or something, but he was very, he was very together, very compass mentis, had a fantastic couple of days of him. I mean, I, I just yeah. talked to him for hours and hours and hours, went out to dinner, all this kind of stuff. He was just amazing. And I said to him, oh, Johnny said, said that, you know, this incident, and he said it was you. You know, he said, I said, said was it? He said, oh, yeah, go on, Emma. Yeah, yeah, well, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant. Oh, incredible. And he was just, a, you know, Les, Les was just a very, very tough guy. He was, a, yeah. you know, from a sheep farming family. Yeah. You know, when he left New Zealand, he left New Zealand for the first time, never been on a ship before. Yeah. Went over to Canada, you know, learned to fly, joined 97 Squadron. You know, nothing really phased him. He was very kind of sort of phlegmatic. Yeah. And, and so, you know, he was just anything for, up for kicks, really. And, you know, he just found the whole thing quite quite interesting and quite exciting doing that. And two months off from normal ops and... You know. I mean, the idea of seeing the dams raid is an opportunity to have a couple of months off from normal work. Yeah, it's quite interesting. It's quite it? interesting yeah. as, as attitudes. Yeah, as attitudes go. I mean, he felt quite confident beforehand. He felt that they were all trained. They knew what they were about. And I was like, yeah, but come on, you know, for, compared to good a day, I mean, you had absolutely zero training, yeah. really. Yeah. Compared to what you would expect for someone mounting this kind of operation at the yeah. time. Yeah, he just just shrugged. You know, it's different times, different yeah, place. They didn't do a dump. I mean, there's no dummy run, is there? No, uh, I mean the the so the the no, it's it's, a, it's absolutely a one hit. I mean, this is the one thing, hit. Well, chance. well, yeah, and all and all last minute. I mean, one of the one of the things in the the room next door, they've got the the bomb aimers uh, perspex nose cone thing, and with it the the sight, the famous yeah. sight, which is two nails, yes. as far as I can work yeah. out. Through two bits of wood and a, and a grip. And a handle. And then an eyepiece. And the yeah. idea is that when the towers on the dam... On the Myrna Dam. On the Myrna Dam, that's the, for the Myrna Dam, that thing, line up with that site, that's when you that's when you fire the mine. That's when you drop it. That's when you're at the right distance. And when did they come up with that? I can't remember. They just, I think they, they just, the, they worked it. They worked, someone worked it. I can't remember who it was who came up with it, but it was, it was literally done by accident. And it was the same thing with the, it, it, it wasn't, with the, you know, and how do you know when you're exactly the right height? Well, how do you know when you're at 60 feet at night running over water? And, and the idea of converging these two spotlights. Yeah. So at a, at a it's, it's like converging anything. You know, yeah. you, can, you can set it so that it converges in yeah. exactly the right place. So they do this with the, with the spotlights as well. It, it is not Gibson going off with Eve to kind of look at the, uh, um, you know, seeing some spotlights in a no. theatre. It is, it is worked out much more kind of methodically than that. But yeah. it is still worked out kind of very amateurishly. I mean, the whole thing's incredible. So the scene is set. We've uh, figured out what the dam's raid is eventually. Um, we went around the houses a bit there. 
Um, <laughs> That's a surprise. The, 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 what the equipment, the the genesis of the upkeep mine, the aiming equipment, who the crews are, how it's just a jolly holiday for some. Um, but that's only part one, really, of our Dams Raid stuff here from Scampton. And we'll be coming back to the raid itself, um, how it went, outcomes, and whether it was worth it. Are we going to bother with that? No, we're definitely going to bother with that. Oh, right, we're going to bother with that. Okay. Yeah. Um, we'll see you soon. Cheerio.